Hello, and welcome to the podcast with Suzanne and Amy, brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine. I'm Suzanne. And I'm Amy. And this is episode 12, recording on Sunday, February 26th, 2017. Or as we like to call it, in a timely fashion. In a timely fashion, despite both pollen, being attacked by pollen, um, because it's apparently spring, and uh, and having a, a library sale. We have managed to come together. <laughs> well, you did you did make the library sale. So let's I not make- disappoint anyone who might be living vicariously through your book shopping. That's like right. Me. That's right. We had to schedule the podcast around because today was the last day of the library sale, which is I mean the day that they hand out grocery bags and say as many books as you can fit in here for five dollars. And um and I mean, that's like going into labor. That's, you no, know, it's non-negotiable. It's going to do what it's going to do. So we showed up, my daughter and I, we only got, had three bags. So that's pretty good. And uh, now we have to go through and find, because I always buy books over again. Do you have this? Even oh, yeah. sometimes, even when I know I have the book. Oh, a lot I of buy times, them over again on purpose if I really like the edition. I just like really like certain books. Like if it's a book I really like, I want to buy the copy even though I have a perfectly nice copy at home. And not because it's special, not because it's hardback or a nice trade pick, just because I just want to have it. It's I don't do it. Usually I'm able to restrain the urge, but I wonder if anybody... <laughs> no, I think it's the sorcery and Cecilia problem. It's the problem of loving a book oh, and then finding right. out that it's out of print and that you have to zealously guard your copy of it. And it's... So whenever you see a backup copy, you feel like you must, must, must have it because what if you lose your other one? The internet has changed that, but not, I think, the sense of urgency in crazy book-loving people. I think, I think that, yeah, my generation, I'm just, I'm never going to feel safe. Yeah. Even, even when it's all in the cloud, I'm never going (laughs) to, I'm never going to feel safe. Well, how are you doing? Because I know the pollen's been getting you. Um, yeah, I was going to say, if I kind of go in and out, it's probably because my voice is going in and out. If I fall asleep, just cover for me. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I'll just talk about crazy. I mean, it's February and my cherry tree is blooming. All the flowers in my backyard are blooming. And apparently they've decided that they're so upset about this that they want to kill me. So <laughs> they've turned violent. <laughs> it's the only response, right? <laughs> well, I think everybody's been going around. And Philip went to uh, I Philip went to get me some of my my allergy meds that I'm on year round. And he's like, he was at the grocery store. He's at Kroger, and he's like, "Hey, that shelf is all cleaned out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there isn't any boxes left. So yeah, yeah, it's fun to be in Georgia in in the in the spring slash winter in the whatever this is. That's right. Well, we we wanted to have a homeschool topic that we didn't actually have to do any research for. Right. Because research takes effort. So we thought... We're very committed to getting the podcast out on time after our We're trying. We really are because we like you guys. Um, And we like talking to each other. And so we thought we'd talk about uh, language arts curriculum this time around. Because we talked about math curriculum in the last episode which, Amy, I'm officially nagging you again to put up the, the last will, episode. I will. I'm sorry. Could, do you want me to come over and hold your hand? Maybe. While you do? I might want you to come over. And we, I, I can do that. I can do it's that. So, Call and hold your hand. I know it's ridiculous. I had I was in therapy for this. So, I mean, <laughs> I know it's crazy. I just, but I have a really hard time not finishing something the way I want to finish it. I, I know. It, 
it's so silly. And then I'd like, I, I build all these procrastinating tools <laughs> into the scenarios so that I don't ever get it. It's, I'm familiar. I will get it up. I promise that I will get it up. I, I'm sure I, if we're going to get out there. Everybody's going to be like, why are we making such a big deal about it? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's not even a great podcast. <laughs> Suzanne is great. Suzanne is always great. But we talk a lot about math. We do that talk podcast. a lot about math. So we thought we would talk about language arts this time around. Um, like once you, what curriculum, curriculums, I can't say that today. Um, <laughs> we use, uh, once you've kind of gotten beyond phonics and beyond basic handwriting, um, what do you start to use? So I thought, you know, I would tell everybody what I use for spelling and grammar. Yeah, so cool. for language and arts, that's for me, that's what spelling, grammar, writing, um, like composition kind right. of writing and uh, literature. Is there anything basic I'm leaving out of there? I don't think so. I think I think that's pretty much language arts. That's what people consider. So most of my curriculum I got originally um, originally came from the recommendations in the first edition of The Well-Trained Mind uh, by Suzanne Weisbauer and Jesse Wise. Um, and I still have my first edition. And when in doubt, she went, they, they gave both, they gave their like recommendation, but they also made sure to give a secular recommendation for every top, which I really appreciated because I wanted to do the secular thing. So the first thing we've used is the spelling workout uh, texts. There are workbooks actually from Modern Curriculum Press. They have levels A through H and you can pretty much start, you can start in A pretty much when you have a kid that's writing, okay. that's doing basic handwriting and there are consumable workbooks and it's, you know, it's, it's your basic, here's the list of spelling words um, for this lesson and try to use them as these sentences and get some basic definition information. And we would go through a lesson in about two days. The first day we, we do, they're usually like four pages. So we do two pages the first day, two pages the second day, and then have a spelling bee the second day. Oh, you have spelling bees? We have spelling bees. Um we're going to talk a little bit about why, why, you know, whether spelling is actually something that we need to, to teach, because I think that's an interesting conversation to have. But I will confess now that the reason, one of the major reasons we do spelling as part of our homeschool curriculum is because I, I was, I was kind of a spelling bee champ <laughs> in the day. Yay! I was um, runner up for Brevard County two years in a row and got to go to the state competitions and flamed out um, both times. Wow. Oh at the state competitions, but I got for being, you know, the, the county second in the county I got and second, both times delicatessen got me one year. Uh, shrapnel got me at the state level, which my little brother who was a like military history freak just laughed at me all the ride home. Cause, cause I got it wrong. Anyway, when I won at the county level, I got a trophy that was like three and a half feet high. And wow. There are days now, I mean, and it's long gone, you know, it's, it's long been decluttered. I did not take it with me when I left for college or anything, <laughs> but there are days now that I would like to have a giant trophy right? <laughs> that I had earned that I could just go and look at and say, look what I did. <laughs> I don't think I could ever throw away a three foot trophy. I mean, I so admire I your like commitment to minimalism. Big old B on the top of it. So anyway, so, so some of my ego is bound up in being a really good speller. So I wanted to um, give that to my kids, inflict that on my children, um, but I have never encouraged them to actually compete in a spelling bee because I cannot, 
you know that they'll they'll show they'll they'll televise some of the national the national spelling bee and there's been you know movies and there's a musical or something about it. i can't watch any of that i will have a panic attack um, really oh yeah no i can't i can't i can't watch the kids spelling up there and i could never have watched my kids do it as a parent because it was so so stressful well, it is really yeah. scary, those kinds of events, when you're a little kid <laughs> in your best dress and you're standing up on the stage in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's actually harder to watch than it is to, to spell. Um, but yeah, so I have many days in my childhood where they'd publish. <laughs> this is good. Sorry. I guess I'm on allergy meds, too, because I'm just going off on this tangent. <laughs> about They'd publish this newspaper full of words, and my mom would sit down and we'd practice the words. And they were all crazy words. That's so awesome. Well, so how do, how do you do spelling bees with your kids? I'm, I'm in love with this. Like now I want to do spelling. Oh, it spelling. just means we do the spelling test out loud oh. instead of having them write it down, which they thought was a treat, right? Because from the early days, they didn't, they wanted to write as little as possible. Right. So when we go through the words, we just, um, we just check them out loud, you know, so spell delicatessen and then you, they'd spell delicatessen. And, um, and uh, if we had, if we happened that two of them got done with their lesson at the same time, we do a spelling bee where we just alternate back and forth. So they each spell one of their words. So it wasn't, it just, it just means we did it out loud, which is actually harder than writing it down. Right. But they didn't, they didn't believe me when I told them that. Um, and they really, really didn't want to have to write them down. So we've done all our spelling practice. So you start about like first grade? About first grade with with uh, book A, and they they take about a school year to get through. I mean, it depends on how many. I think there's 36 lessons. Okay. Wait, no, that's not right. Is that right? I don't know. Um, wait, I have a book here. <laughs> <laughs> We're super organized today. I actually went down and dug through some of my old curriculum. Oh my gosh, so, my so, wee Suzanne means that she is super organized today. Just to clarify, I don't want you to get your hopes up. <laughs> So, yes, there's 36 lessons and they come in consumable workbooks. So you just you you just write in the in the workbook. And um, oh, what, what else do I going to say about that? Yeah, I think I got mine through Rainbow Resource. But that was something that came from, again, from as a suggestion from the well-trained mind. And once we've worked our way through them, we switch over to a vocabulary book, uh, vocabulary from classical roots. Uh, uh- by Norma Pfeiffer and Nancy Flowers. And I probably got that from Rainbow Resource too. There's an A, B, and C book. And this is less about, I mean, it's, it's so it, this is more vocabulary oriented. Right. And it gives you the, it, it bases the lessons around, it'll pick some Greek and Latin roots and then give you vocabulary words based on those. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not that different from, I mean, they're all kind of the same. But they have 16 lessons per book. And again, we take about two days to go through a lesson. And um, so you can work through those pretty quickly. And then when, I, when I'm when i not doing that or when I need a break from that, um, we've used uh, vocabtest.com. So V-O-C-A-B-T-E-S-T.com. And it's a free resource. And they have uh, vocabulary lessons from sixth grade through advanced senior and they also have SAT practice lessons. And um, there's like 15 units for each each grade level. And each unit has about 20 words. And they have all these little online 
games and tests that you can do. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the kids really like that one because then they don't have to write anything down at all. Although I usually with those, if we're doing that, I ask them to write their own sentence for each of the words. Right. Right. Um, So that's how we do spelling. And then for grammar, we started out doing the first language lessons for the well-trained mind. The classic. (laughs) Right. So I was looking and I haven't seen there's a newer edition. We had the first edition that had uh, volume one and two in it. And I, I really like those. We, w- we used it for all four kids. Um, it's got, you know, basic part of speech, teaching basic part of speech stuff. There's some narration. There's some poem memorization. Um, I don't know that the kids loved it, but they didn't hate it. They liked the poem memorization. Right. Um, that, you know, that's one of my favorite things to torture my own children with. And I think it's really good. I, I, I realized we had done, we, I wish we had done more in our homeschool. It, my 16 year old just the other day said that she just, she really enjoyed having those poems in her brain mm-hmm. and we could have done a lot more with that, but we didn't because I'm, because I'm lazy. But um, yeah, first language lessons to so like second, first grade. And then we went to growing with grammar, which you can get at their, I think that's growing with but you can search for it. And um, let's see. I have a copy somewhere so I can tell you who wrote it by Tamala Davis. And I really like these books. There's a little, there's a little uh, textbook and then there's a workbook that you can either use as consumable or you can copy the pages or you can have them write it out on their own paper. And it's pretty intense. Um, it, when I bought, I bought like the first editions and those were levels and now I think they've gone to grades I mean, I'm sorry, they had it grade like one through eight, and now they've gone to calling them levels one through eight, which is sometimes a little bit easier with homeschoolers. Um, they get into sentence diagramming really early. and oh, Wow, well, you had me at sentence diagramming. Yeah, and it's pretty intense, and my kids have not all been fans. Uh, my 14-year-old right now is the best diagrammer we've had in the family, and, and doesn't it doesn't phase her at all. My older two... Um, there were tears, there've been tears, (laughs) there's been much unhappiness when diagramming sentences, but I really liked that. And I was interested to go to their website because I, I figured out my elementary curriculum a while back, right. With kid number one. So I'm just reusing all that stuff. So I haven't gotten to see all the new great stuff that's out there. So they've now got a spelling curriculum and they've got some writing curriculum and some extra sentence diagramming. So there's a lot of great stuff out there. I'm just using the stuff that I, you know, that worked for me seven years ago or whatever. Which Um, I think you should get points for because the homeschoolers, when we buy these expensive curricula, when we spend a lot of money on them, we're always like, oh, but we're going to use it for so many years. And then we, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. (laughs) Well, I have a bunch of extra curricula that I bought and then I oh wait no I'm not going to use this one after all but when I find something I like I kind of stick with it and it did take me a few years to learn when you find if it's not broke don't fix it right um yeah and and I'm kind of glad that I don't go look at these things (laughs) because I would be spending money um but yeah so I would alternate the growing with grammar books with the gum books from Zayner Blozer, their grammar usage and mechanics workbooks, okay. uh, G-U-M. And those are consumable worksheets. And um, again, they have, they, they are kind of, they've gone from levels to grades. 
<laughs> I'm looking at all this stuff. I have the first edition or the second. They're now on a different edition. Um, and I like them, but they're not, they're good. So they're less intense. So we do the kind of more intense growing with grammar. And then we do a gum workbook, which is kind of more review. It doesn't have as much teaching in it. It's not, it doesn't ask as much of the students, I think. So it's nice to kind of go back and forth. And when the kids really want to give up on me, which I've had happen, we'll take a break and we'll just read some books like we've read Eat Shoots and Leaves ah, that's so by, Lynn, by Lynn Truss and The Mother Tongue by Bill Bryson. Um, so there's actually a ton of books. This is a whole little subgenre out there about books about not only writing, but specifically about grammar and English grammar and often using humor. You know, they're often cute little cartoons or whatever. So we did, we took a break and just, just used those for a while. And now I've gone through my whole spiel of spelling and grammar. Tell me, Amy, what do you do for spelling and grammar? Well, now I'm just ashamed and wanting to hide under my, my little bed because um, cause I don't actually do spelling and grammar with my kids at all. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Right. We, we read books, and when we read books, we do narrations, you know, so the kids, and we do dictation. Um, so that's that's a little bit spelling grammary. We will often diagram sentences, interesting sentences in books together, um, and we'll look at different constructions. We'll talk about why an author decided to write the sentence this way versus that way. Um, and when they ask me how to spell something, I tell them, or if I notice that they're spelling something wrong, I'll say, oh, hey, you know, that's actually a C instead of an S. Isn't that interesting, this group of words? Um, but we don't do, uh, we, we start Latin in third grade, which I think teaches a lot of English grammar. Um, I know not everyone does that, but for me, it's easier to teach Latin grammar than English grammar, even though. Uh -huh kind of teaches the same kinds of grammar but yeah I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed because we don't we don't really use anything see see I don't think you should be embarrassed because I feel like that you're like you're way at <laughs> <laughs> I actually do I mean I think there's a really I have wondered myself I mean one of the things about homeschooling right is we're not supposed to just copy what the school is doing ideally I think we want to I mean, I, ideally, I don't want to teach spelling just because I know that my local elementary schools teach spelling, right? I want to teach it because I, I want, uh, there's a means to an end. I'm trying to get somewhere with it. And with spelling, I have really come to, I mean, I always thought I was a great speller because I, I've read everything. I tried to read everything in the entire world, right? And I yeah. thought it just came from that. But you know, my best friend in high school who read as much or more than I did is and was a terrible speller. The same words over and over and over again. She just, you know, of course, these. this is the days, um, children, before, <laughs> before spell check. Um, she was a really, really lousy speller. And so didn't have anything to do with what she read. And now that I'm looking at my own kids, who've all kind of been raised with the same emphasis on reading and and the same kind of curriculums. And I have a couple that are naturally just, you know, really, really good spellers. They're going to spell words correctly most of the time. And um, then I have some that are that are just not. It's yeah. not intuitive. And I, I'm wondering, 
the spelling aspect of it, I just wonder if some of that's ingrained, you know, just how your brain works. And now that we have so many tools to help us, um, I don't know if we need to be doing it extra. And I also don't know from the vocabulary end if you're focusing, because that's, you know, that's, even if you set the spelling aspect aside, you can still want to improve your vocabulary. Right. And that's good for the SAT. That's good for a bunch of stuff. But if you're really reading a lot and you're reading really good books, you know, are you getting that much more from devoting homeschool time to to specialized spelling and vocabulary? I don't know. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I often think that whatever way I'm doing it is the wrong way. I mean, that's my immediate <laughs> assumption is that if I'm doing it, it must be wrong. As evidenced by your children and how unhappy and miserable they are. <laughs> well, but even there, I mean, if you look at language arts, you look at my daughter, who is great at language arts. It is her gift. She is so good at it, naturally good at it, enjoys doing it, mm-hmm. will work hard at it. Um. I did exactly the same things with her that I did with my son, who's nine, who basically would rather, I don't know, battle sharks in his pajamas than do anything related to reading or writing. Right. Um, Of course, I I feel that there's something magical that I could have done other that would make him also love language arts. But my goal with him is just to get him through without hating it, just to get him through and have him like willing to write a sentence, not even excited. I'm not even looking for excited anymore, (laughs) just willing. So I think it really depends on the kid too. I think you're right. And I think we have, I mean, I think that's one of the the great things is that we can kind of adjust as, as we go along. I mean, I think for me with the spelling, like I said, I, I kind of acknowledge that the spelling thing is important to me. And my ego is kind of bound up in that. And I just couldn't, I considered setting it aside and not doing it. But I, but I just, cause I think you can make a strong argument that you don't need to spend your homeschool time on that. But, um, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And it also doesn't take up a huge amount. We don't, we don't focus a lot of time and energy on it. Well, I used to always say, it's inevitable that you're going to screw your kids up in some way. So you may as well do it in the ways that are the most fun for you. (laughs) Most pleasing. Well, grammar has been a whole, grammar has not been fun with my kids, doing with my kids. And I have, this is when I've really gone back and forth on because I feel like, okay, so the means to the end, what you're trying to get to, and, and if you disagree, please let me know. Um, You're trying to write well, right? Ultimately that's, that's the goal with learning grammar is that you write well and that you're using the language correctly. And if you're breaking grammar rules, then you, which all writers do, all published writers do pretty much, you know what you're doing and you're choosing to do it. Right. Um, so if that's what you're trying to get to, and if, for example, you have a child like yours who, who is naturally gifted already, or even if they're not naturally gifted, if they are, if they write well, if they right. use the language well already, um, is there a good reason to kind of put them through the, the <laughs> my kids did not enjoy grammar, <laughs> hence the language that I use around it, um, to kind of put them through this extra work? You know, if they're already writing pretty well, if you're not trying to solve a problem. And I have really struggled with that. Um, and I think, I think ultimately I was just afraid that if we didn't study grammar in a in a structured way, 
Because I don't think I could do it the way you're talking about, where as part of our reading, we pull out, a, you know, pulling out an interesting That sounds great, but I don't, I don't think I would have felt confident. Well, I, I would not have felt confident doing that. So well, by the taking- catch is you miss, I think, a lot of good sentences because the story is so exciting. <laughs> really, you kind of do it at the beginning and the end oh, that's of good. reading. But I, I just kind of was afraid that I'd end up with kids that wouldn't know what a noun, wouldn't know a noun from a verb, even if they could use them correctly. And then what if I had to stop homeschooling suddenly because, you know, our family situation changed and I had to send my fifth grader or my sixth grader or my eighth grader to school and they couldn't tell a noun from a verb. Your kids can all tell nouns from verbs, though. So you did it. I did it. But, you know, I but but I don't I mean, I don't know if they would have. I don't know if they would be able to if we hadn't have done the grammar, right? That's my that was my that was my reasoning ultimately behind doing the structured grammar. Oh right, study. and that's that's what I meant. Like you achieved yeah. what you set out to achieve through the means that you used to achieve it. So you succeeded. right, and I <laughs> I made at least half of them really really hate sentence diagramming, um, but I will say that the sentence because it's not something they emphasize that much in the schools anymore. And, um, and I did make them do it because I'm like, look, if you, this is where the rubber meets the road. If you can diagram a sentence, then you really know what the words are doing. Um, and then any diagramming they've run into high school has been pretty easy. Right. Compared to, to what they did here. I love diagramming sentences. I guess there's just like a subset of people that will love it. And you are not, yeah, you are not the only one. I have another friend who who teaches English by some strange thing, who who enjoys diagram. I am not a fan. I am not. I I don't diagram sentences well. So that was one reason that I really struggled with. Should I force my children to do it when they hate it so much? But yeah, I did, and and now I'm having fun. Like I said, because the 14 year old is like, no problem. She just doesn't even understand why it would be an issue because she just zips right through it. Super sentence diagrammer. Um, and then, so the, the curriculum that I have really struggled with and talk about, I have this version and this version and this version is like the composition, like writing and composition, because I don't know how to, I have always, uh, felt like I, I felt comfortable as a writer, right? I've, I've always gotten good grades in school and I feel comfortable as a writer, but I have no idea how one then how one teaches someone to write because it always felt like something that was very natural for me. Um, so I have flailed all over the place with this one. Um, we started uni- using uh, writing with ease, which is some of the early elementary stuff that again, from the Susan Weisbauer, the well-trained mind people. Um, and that is a lot of copy work and dictation and narration. And my children in fact, that's all it is, is copy work, dictation, and narration at, like, wow. lower levels. And the kids hated it. Hated yeah, it. Yeah, that's hated a it. little, like, torture. Hated it. And the narration particularly. Um, and I just really struggled because I wasn't sure, do I need to, I mean, how much of this is a skill that they, I mean, I think narration is something. So when I say narration, I'm talking about reading a passage and being able to summarize it, essentially being able to retell it um, and with picking up the key points and, and not putting in all the details. Right. And it, I think that as adults, we often don't realize that that is a, a learned skill. That's not something that we just kind of do naturally. 
Um, and it's something we use every day. I mean, if you're in a class and you're taking notes, you have to be able, or you're reading a book or you're doing whatever, anything academic, you have to be able to, to pull out the key details. Um, when we go tell, you know, Hey, I saw this great movie and this is what happened. We're doing narration, but man, trying to help somebody learn to do that. We were not hugely successful at that in, in my homeschool. And I don't know if it was because I wasn't explaining it, you know, because I was doing a lousy job of teaching it or if because maybe I was off, I don't know how much of it is a developmental, right? Like maybe I was asking too much from where, you know, compared to where they were, but man, my kid sure hated, <laughs> sure hated doing narration. How about you guys? How, what has your been experience with narration? So we, we do narration. Um, we start doing it about in third grade. Um, that's when we mm-hmm. started with my daughter. And yep. that's when we started with, um, with my son. We, we go a little slower with him. Um, this year, I think I'm, I'm asking him for three sentences. Yeah. I'm like, well, if you had to explain this to me in three sentences. Yep, yep, yep. So that's that's kind of what we do. And there are times when he does pretty well and times when he does kind of lousy. And I, I don't do a lot of correcting because he's a kid who doesn't naturally love this. I really just want him to try and keep okay. trying. Um, you know, as he gets older, uh, you know, it'll be more complicated narrations. Um, my daughter was very good at them from the beginning. Um, so it's, it's different with my son. I don't, I don't necessarily know that this is the best route for him and maybe it will mm-hmm. change. Um, he's only in third grade. Well, and that's about when we started doing them too. And it's, I think the pushback I got a lot of times was just, I don't understand why I have to do this. This feels stupid or frustration because it was, um, they wanted to get everything in there while, co- you know, compressing it down, which is kind of the point you've got to, you can't put everything in. Right. There. You have to pick and choose. So I had the reactions of just, uh, just a lot of frustration around it because they could, they didn't feel they were doing it right. Quote unquote, or, um, or just a real lot of pushback of doing it at all because it, it felt, stu- and it's not something, I don't think this is something that the elementary schools are doing. I think this is more of an old fashioned, I mean, this shows up a lot in homeschooling and in classical homeschooling and in other flavors of homeschooling. But I I get the sense that this is not something that you see a lot of. Well, I actually think it's a skill that a lot of kids don't have. You know, I teach a lot of high school English students and I find that it's really difficult for kids to summarize a story or mm-hmm. a television show. I mean, they just go on and on and on. Um, so, so I think, I think narration is a great skill to have um, a really important one, even if it is an old fashioned skill. Well, no, so and I could I'd see say that my son very much likes to add a hashtag at the end of his three sentences. So oh, that is a brilliant idea. <laughs> That is write a tweet. Ah, that is so brilliant. Tweet that that really <laughs> <laughs> that could have changed my homeschool if you it told me that like sizes, narration. You know, five years ago before I when I wouldn't know what a hashtag was or <laughs> Yeah, my yeah. son knows what a hashtag is. I'm it's a totally different world. That is, that is really awesome. So yeah, so I agree. I think narration can be a really important skill, but I think that I kind of flailed when, when trying to 
achieve it in our homeschool. We've all kind of toughed through, all four kids kind of toughed through it at least a little bit. I don't know what the ultimate, you know, the ultimate outcome was of all that. Um, but we would, so we would use, and if you want some narration, the Writing with Ease uh, series of textbooks will give it to you in spades. You'll have all the narration you can handle. Um, and then we've used the Writing Strands curriculum by Dave Marks. Have you heard of that one? That's more of a creative writing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's lessons. And so they start out at the very early levels. They're starting out with, okay, like here's a sentence. How can we put more detail into this sentence? And then you're building up paragraphs. And they're ta- he's talking about all the different ways you can get information into the, you know, all, you know, kind of making your writing more interesting. Um, but again, that one wasn't a home run either because I feel like my kids did not like being told what to write creatively. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they would really, they would not be, you know, there'd be a particular assignment to do this and they just would not feel like doing that. Um, and I kind of sympathized with them. So I feel, yeah. And we've tried also tried the Michael Clay Thompson language arts, some of his language arts curriculum published by Royal Fireworks. Which I think are are pretty great. If I used a language arts curriculum, I think that's, that's the one I had my eye on. There's some good stuff. We have, uh, we don't have their full, if you want to, they've got a full intertwining grammar, I think vocabulary. They've, they've got a whole set that you can use it intertwine. And we just kind of pulled out the composition elements. Um, so we have a like paragraph town and essay voyage and like paragraph town is, is, is helping people, helping students build paragraphs. It's got giant text and it tells the story in a conversation between a couple of ducks who are talking about paragraphs. So, um, but my daughter read it like in middle school and actually said that, um, it really helped focus, it helped focus some of the things about paragraphs and how to structure them. So they, so we found that useful, but it's just, it's hard doing all this stuff. I don't, I don't feel like I've done a good job and I outsourced my two kid, my older two kids to my friend who's the English teacher and had her tutor them because she teaches English at a, at a local high school to kind of get them ready for high school English. But gosh, I really, I really struggle with this. And I think I've kind of, with my younger two, I've kind of just thrown up my hands a little bit and said, well, you know, they'll get some, some more specific assignments in high school and we'll just help them get through it because it's, I don't know, I find it really hard to teach. Um, I think it is hard to teach because I, I think that people get good at writing by writing something that they enjoy writing about. And I think yes. with curricula, it's really hit or miss. Like you might have one assignment that you really love, but then you have 10 that you don't in a row and it kind of breaks up your momentum. Yeah. One thing that I did with both my kids, which is maybe overcomplicating the whole thing, but especially in elementary school. I'm starting with my son now, and I did this with my daughter probably up until fifth grade, um, is I let them dictate their writing to me, and I write it down. So uh-huh. They watch me break up the paragraphs, add in the punctuation, oh, okay. and I'll ask them questions like, oh, wait, is this part of the sentence or is this a new sentence? Um, but it seems to be a little easier for them when they don't mm-hmm. have to do the, the writing actual physical writing part when they're, you know, the creators, the dictators. 
Well, and I can see how that would really, really help watching over your shoulder. Right. And seeing how you translate what's, you know, what you're thinking about in your head to the correct grammar and punctuation on the page. Yeah, that's a really good technique. And when my daughter was in middle school and she started doing more of her own writing, I kept a, a big cup, a little, like a giant cup full of um, slips of paper that said things like um, compare and contrast, argue, write a description. And she would, so there were a whole bunch of them, and she would draw one when it was time for her to write something. And she could pick anything that she had been reading that it applied to. I let okay. them do it about um, television shows and movies, too. Um, but she would draw, and that would tell her what she should do. And then she would pick the source that she wanted to use, the text that she wanted to use to go with it. And that so kind how of helped. Often, how often would you do that during a week? Probably once a week. Okay. Because and how, how I long? really believe in revision, you know, I think that people should write something, put it away for a day and then come back to it. Yeah. So how long, how, how long were the compositions you were looking for? Like a paragraph or? So we would start out doing a paragraph or two. And then by the end, she was writing three pages ish. Yeah. So by like eighth grade, she would write like three pages. See, I think the problem I don't was... like to break it up into five paragraphs because I hate the five paragraph essay. I have like all these strong feelings about it. So I, I will never say <laughs> five paragraph essay without rolling my eyes dramatically. <laughs> I think I think what I should have had you do is is write me a writing curriculum. <laughs> I think that's what I should have done. But it's too late for me now. <laughs> well, you can write a writing curriculum for someone else. <laughs> I don't want, yeah, you should write a writing curriculum for somebody. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So hopefully, fingers crossed, my my eighth grader who's heading off to high school next year has has done well um, on like standardized testing in that kind of area. So, but, but she hasn't had to do the longer pieces aside from some of her summer programs. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how she does. But I think she's familiar with the vocabulary. She's familiar yeah. with the ideas. I think that she'll do well. Right. And you are, you are, you know, they are students, they are learning and she has a lot of support at home. But yeah, I think this is a tough one. I think this is, and like, like you're saying, I really love listening to how you did it. Um, I just never felt competent to kind of freestyle that much. Well, I may not be competent. My children are not uh, you know, done with school. My daughter's only in ninth grade. They could graduate and be completely ignorant, never be able to get a job or get into college or be mature, happy adults. So is that, adult. is that what I should be hoping for? Is then I, then I, it's like winning, right? It's I'm like... just saying. <laughs> There's no way to say. Gosh, <laughs> between the, the, with the pollen, we are gloomy today. We, we are. are. <laughs> That's it. It's all over. Don't listen to us. We don't know what we're doing. No, I mean, I think it's worked well. And I'm like, ex I, I feel mostly good about it. Um, even though my son, as I say, hates everything to do with writing. I'm glad I had my daughter first to like it because yeah, because I'm a literary person. And I think it would have been much harder for me to start out with a mathy person. Which one? Oh, well, that's why I saved literature for last in our conversation about language arts. Because yeah, that's I, and I have not done any real, this is something where I have not used a curriculum. I have just used books, books and books and books, all my books that I've had. I mean, so, so for when I'm counting our literature part of our homeschool, I'm counting all the reading aloud we do, which is the morning read aloud, which is the one that I get to pick. Um, the afternoon read aloud, which is usually, uh, it's like, a retelling of the Odyssey or King Arthur stories or myths and legends, that kind of thing. Um, 
and then our after, our evening read aloud, which um, is uh, a book that they've picked. And so I count all of that. So we work our way through a lot of literature. And then starting like in about fifth grade, I've done some assigned reading where I ask them, you know, okay, read this book or we'll alternate. We'll all pick a book for them to read. And then, they'll, you know, they'll pick the next book they want to read and um, I start doing mini book reports. So pulling out things, being able to identify and pull out things like settings, character, character. Um, doing some basic narration with retelling the plot a little bit and then talking about your reaction to the book, what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it. Uh, and, and also, uh, I haven't done it recently, but with my oldest, I would have him do yearly bi- bibliographies mm. and come up starting, probably starting like more in middle school where he would come up with, a <clears throat> by the end of the year, he'd have every book that he'd lit, that he'd read in like a bibliographic format. Oh, that's so cool. That's a great idea. I might steal that idea. Yeah. So that's something that's really easy um, to do. And it just helps keep track of what he's, you know, and you can kind of look at it at the end of the year and say, oh, wow, look at all you've read. And um, yeah. But how about, how about you? What is your, what is your literature? I mean, much the same. I think literature is the most fun part of homeschooling, getting to read all those books together. It's it's the best. And I, I actually do feel pretty, pretty okay with picking the books, right? I'm not going to, because I read so much children's literature and young adult literature, and because I have my whole life and I have my own personal library, I feel like I'm fairly familiar with the classics, um, maybe less familiar than with what's coming out right now, because I can't always keep on top of it. But I feel okay with saying, all right, here are some, you know, in sixth grade, here are some books, you know, uh, my kids have all read The Westing Game. My kids have all read um, uh, The Phantom Toll Booth and uh, Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie and Agatha Christie. And um, Heidi. You know, we haven't, I, had, I don't think anybody's read, Heidi was one of my favorites, but I've had trouble talking people into it. Uh, well, I mean, but there are so many great books. I there like are. Pippi Longstocking. Yes, that's one we have. So, but I, I do wonder if maybe I, I sometimes I feel in the homeschool world that some, this is something that comes very easily to me and I feel very confident. And I wonder if that's just because I'm, I'm book nerd girl. Right. I I feel like not everybody has that love, which is surprising to me because it is (laughs) something that I love so much, but people don't necessarily have the confidence around that. Right. And the great thing about children's literature is, I mean, the Newbery award is pretty reliable. That's true. If you wanted to just read your way through the Newbery lists, you wouldn't be screwing them up. Right. That would be that would be a good a good thing. Well, and just go and look and see. You know, just walk down the the rows in uh, Barnes and Noble or the the library, and just you know see what you remember. What the authors that you remember from when you were growing up, the books that made an impression on you. You know, chances now sometimes you go back. <laughs> What's the term? The suck fairy. You go oh. back and you discover that a work that you loved has been visited by the suck fairy. Um, <laughs> right, right, which is evil and horrible and the worst thing that can happen to anyone. But I think a lot of the times the stuff that we've read, even if we don't enjoy it as much as an adult, but if it made a big impression on us when we were a kid, then it's done its job. Right. And um, yeah, and start there if you have, if you have, you know, Karen, I think is the only one, my, my 16 year old daughter 
I have Nancy, I have a collection of Nancy Drews, like you wouldn't believe, that are very, very close to my heart. None of them have liked it. This is one of the rough things about homeschooling. Right. Is is the, when they don't love the books that you loved. And, and maybe they're not wrong. <laughs> oh, I know. My kids, um, I read them Anne of Green Gables, which, uh-huh. which you know, I adore. It is. I, I love that book so much. And they were so polite about it that it killed me. At least they were polite. No, but it was the terrible kind of polite. It was like, let us humor this poor woman, our mother, who has terrible taste in books. But we understand. Uh She loves it. We're going to be so nice. We're going to be nice. We're not going to break her heart. Nice like the British in that D.H. Lawrence poem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would, I would, what I would do is I would assign like the first book in a series and I wouldn't necessarily make them read it all the way through if they hated it. And so I think, I I may not have made my, my younger daughter read it. But I think most of the kids read The Great Brain um, by John Fitzgerald. Is it Fitzgerald? It's one of my favorite, favorite series that I read over and over and over again growing up. And I had to wait to the fourth kid to find it, to have one that actually liked it and read the entire series all oh, the way through. Wow. So it's I was a like, good if there thing was, you didn't stop at three. I know. If there was no other reason to have kid number four, then the fact that he liked The Great Brain series would be enough. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's fun. In fact, a lot of it, I don't even, I don't even think about it as, as the study of literature, because it's just about reading, reading, reading books, books, books. Right. Well, especially young kids, I think that, that reading is, is so, so important. Um, now that my daughter is in high school, we do a little bit more structured literature. We use, um, we're doing U.S. history this year. So we use the Norton American history book we read things from that and also novels and things based on it and we do more in-depth kinds of questions like you know more about not my favorite stuff but but like theme and imagery and I feel like that can take away from a story I feel like you get a lot of that and having to break it out sometimes takes away your enjoyment of the story I say as a literary theorist (laughs) (laughs) so it's uh so I feel like we're walking a line there. And we've been doing um, comparative literature this year, too. My daughter is really into Studio Ghibli. Oh, uh, yeah. Adaptations. I had to look yeah. up how to say that this morning, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I Googled, how do you pronounce Studio oh, Ghibli? And it told me. Um, but so we read um, When Marnie Was There and watched the adaptation that they did of that. And we read The Borrowers and watched yep. Secret World of Arietti. Right. We're doing the spring, we're doing Howl's Moving Castle and the, the accompanying movie, looking at differences and similarities, because I feel like comparative literature is one thing that kids don't get a lot to, to do a lot in mm-hmm. regular school. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I really want my daughter to learn how to do well, how to look at something and the way that it's been interpreted elsewhere and compare and contrast and draw conclusions about what matters and what doesn't to different kinds of creators. I think it's really interesting. That sounded really nerdy, but it is really interesting. <laughs> it is. It is. I don't know that I'd be comfortable teaching. I don't know that I feel like I'd be, I, I have the, the skills to teach that, but I've been sending my kids off to high school, so it's not my problem. <laughs> so, but well, it I did does. study it for a really long time. So if I didn't have the skills to teach it a little bit, they should right. revoke my diplomas. That's right. They would come, they would come find you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that makes me think of a podcast that I listen to. Oh, because we're going to make a list of podcasts today because Nanette, who's lovely and who has listened to our podcast, I think since the first episode, suggested that that would be a great thing to talk about. That's right. So we made a list of, uh, I made a list of my, my favorite, my podcasts that I actually listen to, none of which have anything to do with homeschooling. But, um, but one of them, I've been trying to get you to listen to it. I know. But I know. I'm going to event. I'm so busy. You won't. It's called Witch Please. And it is two, um, two Canadian professors um, discussing the Harry Potter world. They, they, in terms of feminist theory, and uh, it's hard for me to describe, but it is, it is awesome. Um, I really enjoy it a lot. It's, so they go through and they, they read the book and then they discuss the book and they discuss, there's things like they have a section called Granger Danger, where they discuss <laughs> specifically Hermione, but also the representation of women in, um, in the Harry Potter world. And <laughs> there's there's questions like, hey, in the Harry Potter world, um, are Jewish people represented by goblins? Because there's some really uncomfortable ways in which there are, you know, anti-Semitic stereotypes are, are, are embodied by this character. So they had a section called Jew Watch to see <laughs> if there was they could if they could find another Jewish person in Harry Potter. Um, so. So this is the kind of it does analysis. sound right up my alley. It it really it really is, and like I said, they are these are these are professional ladies who who do this work, and um, I just find it wildly entertaining and also really educational because I you know I went to a technical school, I studied computer science, I did not I did not study literature in any I mean I took some lit classes in college, but it it was just kind of a hobby thing on the side. It wasn't anything in depth. And I certainly did not study any, um, didn't get any deep into any analysis and criticism or any feminist theory or any um, beyond feminist theory, right? They're talking about the representations of people of color and, you know, how the centaurs are uncomfortably like indigenous peoples and, and why that's why it's uncomfortable and the way it's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So they use a lot of vocabulary that I'm unfamiliar with and they reference a lot of study, you know, academic work that I'm not familiar with, but um, I really enjoy it. And I would really recommend it not only for anybody who sounds like that's fun, but also for like a teenager who is interested in looking at books that way, maybe a little bit more critically, maybe seen, I mean, and they like the Harry Potter books. This is why they're going through them. It's not to tear them down. Right. It's to to do this kind of critical analysis with something you like. So you both can pull out something and say, wow, look at this. This is really great. And then you can look at this piece over here and go, mm, that's not so great. That's kind of tough for me. <laughs> I would argue that that's, that's the whole point of all literary theory. Just because you love something so much that you just want to spend so much time with it. Not because you want to tear it down. I'm just saying. No, no. And I, I agree. But I think that there can be this perception that. Well, we have this perception, right, in our society that the that the moment you criticize something, you hate it, right? I mean, it's black or white. Either either we have that, we have that in relation to our entertainment and our pop culture and our politics and everything. It's like it can be sometimes difficult to say, "Hey, I loved this movie," but also, right? You know, 
like I love the Marvel superhero movies. I oh, do. but also. But also, you know, we have we have white guys and one lady. Yeah. And and I find that I mean, I wish it wasn't I find that problematic. I find that troubling. Um uh, problematic can be a problematic word. I right. <laughs> Did you see? I don't know if you if you look at the links that I post on Fridays, but I I posted a great essay this week about how academia is so important and academic words are so important right now that the uh-huh. author uses problematize, which is my pet peeve academic word. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think it's okay, especially in fandom and especially when we're talking about things like representation matters. And um, I think it is absolutely possible to love something and to be excited about something and also to recognize that there are problems or that that work reflects problems that we have in our culture right? and that we can hope and we can talk about ways to make it better. And that's not shooting the whole thing down. That's not saying that it's still not fun or worthwhile or that if you like it, you're a racist, misogynist, whatever. Right. I think that people can be really sensitive about that in interesting ways where they, mm-hmm. they take it very personally when you don't unequivocally like something that they love. And I, and I do, I feel that way too. I mean, if, if (laughs) um, Disney princesses sometimes come up and, you know, I try not to get defensive about, about my enjoyment of some of the Disney princess movies. And I, so I, so I understand that. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm fine. I I have a Disney princess issue that Suzanne is very nice about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should see Moana. I I would love to see it. I you should see, see Moana, and then just see. And maybe it's not. It'd be interesting if you watched it because you have you have a very um, specific perspective. So so after you watched it, what I'd want to ask is like, well, do you think that do you actually do you see any progress, or not really? And do I just see progress because I have a very very warm place in my heart for a lot of these films. Well, I think that it's okay to, this is such a tangent from podcast, I think it's okay to have a warm place in your heart for something that you love. I mean, I love, you may not know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, I think that it has issues and problems. I don't care about them. I don't care at all. It is, it is my urtext, you know? (laughs) And you don't actually, you don't, and you, you, you don't have to analyze everything you love either. I think it's okay to sometimes just love something. Right. And and then respect what other people think about it, right? Like like I'm not going to try to talk you into loving something because I love it. Right. Or or talk you out of loving something mm. because I don't love it. I mean, I think we should some things people just love and they should get to love them. That's okay. So so anyway, you should go listen to Which Please and um like I said, I think it would be a really f- interesting way for a teenager you know a high school student who's interested in this kind of critical analysis or interested in thinking about media these ways um i think it'd be a really interesting listen for them somebody who loves harry potter i will say they use adult language when appropriate there's not like swearing all the way through or anything but but sometimes it's appropriate to use adult language and they discuss adult situations right so you know they're 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 talking, you know, if it's some sexual, yeah, yeah. So, so just, I don't know that I would say I would, you know, 
send a nine-year-old off to listen to it, (laughs) in part because I don't think they'd enjoy it. But anyway, I, I really like that that podcast. How about you? What 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 are some podcasts you like? So, do you listen to Philosophy Bites? The Philosophy Bites. Oh, I don't. I'm a big fan of that. My friend um, Shelley turned me on to it. Who is who is a philosopher? They have all kinds of interesting people doing interesting work. I mean, the most recent one, which I haven't listened to yet, is. Um, Chris Firth, the neuro- neuroscientist on the point of consciousness. Oh, <laughs> so like, what's what's the point of co- what? what why does why do we point? have consciousness? We know we have consciousness, but why? Right. Um, and they do some interesting stuff. I mean, sometimes they'll focus on one philosopher. They have um, they did Simone de Beauvoir recently. Cool. Um, so if you're interested in philosophy and philosophers who are kind of working, like I think a lot of times we think about philosophy as this. It's almost just history, you know, right. like people had all these thoughts. They were interesting. Here is why. And <laughs> moving on. <laughs> and people are still like doing philosophy, having ideas and, you know, building new constructs. So if you want to hear like working philosophers talking about what they are thinking about now, I think it's a great podcast for that. But there's also some, some, this is what people were talking about then. And it's interesting. Here's well, why. That's cool. That does sound cool. What well, else? I, what else is on your list? Well, I first got into listening to podcasts by listening to a Thrilling Adventure Hour. Ooh. Um, so that's that's. Have you heard of that at all? Um, I feel like I have heard the name. Is it is it like stories? It's stories, is what it is. So so there's there's this group, and they've uh, they've kind of stopped doing it. Although the podcasts are still coming out, but you have there's a whole big backlist to listen to. You have years of content to listen to. Um, they would have an annual, uh, they, they called it a radio show and they would put on like an hour long radio show and it would have, uh, different segments in it. And it was called the thrilling adventure hour. And they had one segment. Oh gosh, I haven't listened to one. Uh, uh, Nevada. Um, oh shoot. Sparks, Nevada. Sparks, Nevada is an adventurer on Mars. He's a, he's the marshal of Mars. And so it was like this, this space Western, you know, fantasy radio show. And then um, there's one that is a couple who drink all the time, who solve ghost problems. (laughs) If you have a, anyway, Um, (laughs) it's, it's, so what they do in the podcast is they they break up the segments. They don't they don't give you the whole hour in the podcast. Each episode is like Sparks. So you'll get a Sparks Nevada episode, and then you'll get um, I'm completely blanking on on the other names of the segments, but you'll you'll get different segments. Um, so you can just follow one segment if you happen to like a lot, like that one a lot, or you can follow all of them, and it's. It's very entertaining and I like it a lot. And actors, I'm always excited when I see a thrilling adventure hour actor show up on TV. Mark Evan Jackson, who's been um, most recently on uh, The Good Place, playing, was it Sean? The, oh, at the, the end. judge? Yeah, yeah, he's Sparks Nevada. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, Paget Brewster is another big player in that. And so, anyway, it's it's really entertaining. I highly recommend the Thrilling Adventure Hour, and it's a whole it's you know the whole family listens to it. Um, and then we got it, and because of that, we got into more uh, fictional. We got into Welcome to Night Vale. 
Right. A lot of people love that. Is it really good? Should I listen to it? Is it worth You it? should give it a try. So so what it is, Night Vale is this town out in the desert where like every X-File in the world happens there and the, the government helicopters and the the shadow, you know, the the shadowy government forces. It's um it's really entertaining. So it's just one person doing like a community calendar local radio show in this town where everything is crazy. Um, so if you listen to the, <laughs> I was just thinking about some of the first episodes I listened to. One was like um, the library, you know, the summer program at the library and, and, and in Night Vale, the librarians all have claws and are very <laughs> dangerous and so you hope that your child will survive the summer book program. It's hard to describe, but um, I, as you go on, when you first listen to it, the first few episodes are kind of, uh, there's just the one guy talking and it's almost one-off like jokes, like, you know, the dog park is open. Reminder, you are not allowed to go inside the dog park. Do not look directly at the dog park. Um, and as it goes on, it starts to develop uh, multiple characters and story arcs. Okay, so it and does. I, yeah, it but, does. But you have to listen to it for a little bit before it kind of gets into the arcs. I mean, I have gotten emotionally attached to storylines both on Night Vale and on the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, you get to know the characters yeah, and you start to it, care. It's like a like a like reading. Yeah. Yeah, so Night Vale is, and again, that's something that the whole family has listened to and and has enjoyed. So yeah, that was kind of a weird way to get into podcasts, I guess. But I I was drawn to it for the first for the storytelling to begin with, and and then of course listening to all my NPR shows, Fresh Air, uh, Radio Lab, This American Life, Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, all of those. Right, and the um, isn't On Being one of the NPR podcasts? That's a good I, one. I'm sure it is. I have only heard that a couple times. The other podcast that I like that I listen to with my kids is the Infinite Monkey Cage. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. So it's a podcast that's put out by these two British scientists. Uh-huh. And it is just fun and fascinating. They cover this insane hodgepodge of stuff. I mean, they talk about quantum physics and the intersection of science and religion. They talk about, um, you know, what would it be like to be an astronaut? Is cosmology really science? Um, the origins of life? What don't we know? Does size matter? I mean, it, like this huge hodgepodge. They have great guests and it's so fun and entertaining and interesting, and you learn things that you never even thought about studying with your kids. That's cool. They're great. I mean, if, if you're if you're kind of like a science geek, not like where you want to like sit down and do science experiments, but you want to listen to cool people talk about science, it's uh-huh. really, really a fun podcast. I recommend it highly. Okay. Say the name again. The Infinite Monkey Cage. I can't believe you would forget that name. I can't. I knew there were monkeys. I knew there were monkeys. There are always monkeys, I guess. So. <laughs> Well, um, so I guess before we stop talking about podcasts, I have to mention the book podcasts that I listen to. Oh, yes. Um, I have so Book Riot, which is a site I really enjoy online, bookriot.com, has several podcasts going. And um, I enjoy listening to the Book Riot, Book Riot podcast, the first one that started. And that's kind of a news in books. It's the weekly news in books things. Um, and because I'm neurotic, I had to go back and start at the beginning. <laughs> 
So I've been catching up on literary news from three years ago. <laughs> I'm hoping that someday I'll catch up to the present. <laughs> um, yeah, they'll have news come out. Oh, there was because there was all this stuff. Anyway, there's, you know, like all this Harry Potter stuff. And I'm like, oh, you guys don't even know what's coming. <laughs> I know what happens. Um, and then they have uh, all the books, which is, uh, I think it's weekly. It's weekly or every, I think it's weekly about um, the books coming out. And and I like, I like to listen to that too. They've, um, and then you turned me on to reading the end. Yes. I really like that podcast. I should have, I should have put that one on my list, but Paula. I'm sorry, what? Oh, I said I should have put that on my list, but Pollen made me stupid. I'm oh, Pollen. I think, we're, I think we're both. Pollen, that's just the title of this of this particular podcast is Pollen is Can we put an exclamation us. point after it? Suzanne and I have been discussing the gratuitous exclamation point and our aversion to it. I do use a lot of exclamation points in my own, uh, in my own letter writing, email writing, texting, but... I object to them in history books. Well, I feel like people are sensitive about texting now, where if you don't put an exclamation point, people think you're mad. Yeah. Like, my friend will text me something, and I'll just text back, okay, with a period. And she's like, are you upset? No. My (laughs) children have told me that okay with a period is the most passive-aggressive text you can send. Right. Apparently it is. But I... You can send okay without the period, but don't send it, don't put the period on it. It's better to leave off the punctuation. Isn't that crazy? So, it, so anyway. Anyway, so reading the end is really good. And um, that's uh, Jen, Jenny, and Whiskey Jenny. Yes. And they talk, they have a, they have a book that they read. And uh, yeah, so I've been catching up on those two. I haven't caught up all the way. Are they up to the hatening again yet? I guess you wouldn't know if you're not caught up. Because... No, I think I'm just about to hit like the first hatening. Okay. Because I did for, they, they they're only on their second second annual hatening or third yeah annual? yeah yeah so i think i'm just about to hit the first hatening um, i the hatening <laughs> i can't i cannot wait i don't know what it is but it sounds right up my alley um and speaking of of book podcasts we can just segue nicely into our book of the podcast yes yes we read 84 charing cross road uh, a comfort book I come for a very short book. This is like a, this is, you can polish it off in an evening kind of book. Yes. Um, and I, we summed it up last time, but I'll, I'll sum it up for you. Um, a woman, a New Yorker, Helene Hoff, sees an ad for a British secondhand bookshop in a U.S. newspaper. And she writes them a letter asking her, them to help her track down a list of books. And so the shop's proprietor, who's very polite and British, politely starts collecting them for her. And uh, slowly, they form a friendship, and it's all based on their letters, which they send back and forth to each other. Um, Frank is very English, English, English. See, I told you I can't even talk today. (laughs) Frank is very English, so um, it takes about eight years for him to start calling Helene by her first name. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, And Helene is very American. She starts calling Frank Frankie pretty early. Um, She's like uh, mid-century American. You know, like, well, so the first the first set of letters that we see are being exchanged at the end of uh, 1949. Right. So Europe is still recovering from the Second mm-hmm. World War, and they go on until 1969 when Frank. It's very sad. He dies from um, appendicitis complications. Yeah, yeah. And so she never gets to meet him. So it's no. only because she's all throughout the book she's trying to get over to London, 
And um, she's kind of her budget is kind of on a on a shoestring. She's a writer, and um, and she never makes it over there. She also it's also tough for her to travel, which is something you find out a little bit more. But I had just forgotten how much fun this because you're just reading along, and it's like, dear madam, dear gentleman, you know, thank you for this. And then all of a sudden, she she'd asked for a, a particular Bible, and then the one letter starts by, "What kind of a black Protestant Bible is this?" <laughs> Oh, when she responds to his first letter saying, I hope madam doesn't mean the same thing it does over here. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, um, it makes you appreciate the days before instant communication, the days when writing a letter was, was, was an art. Right. And a real way to connect with, with other people. Well, and they do connect. She ends up sending them Christmas packages. um, And it's so funny. Uh, and because they are, they are under strict rationing, like you said. And so they're very, you know, she can send them eggs and she can, from like Denmark, she orders right. things for them. And then she starts to get letters back from, from other people. Don't tell Frank I'm writing you, <laughs> but I wanted to thank you because, because you're Frank's, you know, correspondent and I can't. So she expands, she ends up, she exchanges letters with his wife, um, yeah, it's just it's just really lovely. I love the bit where she sends um, she sends them a, a Christmas hamper with a, with a whole ham in it, which is a big deal because you yep. couldn't get a whole ham in London, you know, for love or money. Um, and then she noticed that their proprietors were Cohen. That's right. <laughs> she was like, "Do I need to express a tongue?" <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Do they keep kosher? I'm so sorry. Tell me. Tell me. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's all so funny and charming and, and she's just, they're both really lovely people and spending time with them is, is just a joy. It really, it really is. And then I went on, which I hadn't done before. I went on to read the follow-up, The Duchess of Bloomsbury Street. Have you ever read that? I haven't because I was always afraid it wouldn't be as satisfying. I really, so this is the first time I've read it. I really liked it. It is not, it's not, so it's not, I mean, some of the Part of the love, I think, for 84 Charing Cross Rose is because it's an epistolary novel, right? I love this telling a story in letters. And The Duchess of Bloomsbury Street is not that. It's her short memoir of when she finally got to go to London because the re- the reason she was eventually able to make the trip, I think in 1970, right. it's because the book, she, when she published 84 Charing Cross Road, it was really, really popular. It did very well. So the publishers wanted her to come over to London to promote it there. So that's how she got to go over. And um, she ends up meeting uh, the wife of Frank's wife and his daughter and going around with them. And then she just she just meets a lot of people who have written her and said, I loved your book and you're going to be here and I want to take you around. So she she makes friendships with people and. um, I really enjoyed it. It's it's her memoir of the trip, and she comes across. She's very funny. She's also I can identify with her. Uh, she has trouble traveling. She's always worried she's going to get lost. All the all the plane ride over to London, she's trying not to freak out because mm. Frank's wife is supposed to meet her, and if she doesn't meet her, you know she doesn't have any idea what she's going to do, and so she's trying not to panic about okay what am I you know, and then going to the hotel and getting lost. And, and, um, I just, 
I just really enjoyed it. So I, I would, I would recommend it. I would say, give it a try. All right. Well, I will. I, I, I have just, I love 84 trying crossroads so much. And right. So, so often sequels take away from that. But so it's a, di- but I think maybe it helps that it's a different kind of, right. Thing. And it, I think it's very satisfying to see her finally in London and to see her meeting up with people. And she talks about, I mean, it, it actually is great for homeschoolers because she is, she is an autodidact. She, um, she talks about, I was going to look for the place. Um, she talks, but she never went to college. She talks about when she was 17, discovering a book of, of lectures by a, um, it's, I forget the name, but it's, uh, and I forget whether he was Oxford or Cambridge, but he's a lecturer and these are his, his lectures on literature to, uh, the freshmen or whatever you, <laughs> are they still freshmen over there? And she's like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, a do it yourself. So at 17, she starts working her way through these lectures. And of course he's lecturing to people who have graduated from Eton and from these, you know, all of the, the, the private public schools over there. And she discovers, well, he just assumes that they've all read Paradise Lost, that they're intimately familiar with Paradise Lost. So she has to say, okay, wait here. And she goes and gets Paradise Lost. And then she starts to read Paradise Lost. And then in Paradise Lost, he assumes that you have a working familiarity with the Bible and, um, you know, with all of this other body of literature. Right. So she just kind of goes from one book to another through... um, through all these references, it takes her, it says she takes it her about 11 years to get through that first book of lectures because she's going back and forth. But, um, but yeah, she did it. She did it herself. She never went to college. She, she was able to support herself as a writer for television. Um, and she, you know, I think homeschoolers can really relate. It's really interesting to see how her education led her along this path and a lot of the, and the books that she's looking for in sharing crossroad are, are books that are, that are part of this reading tree. Right. That, that she Which has make a great homeschool reading list. Really? I mean, you could go. Oh, very list. intimidating one. These are, these are hardcore pieces. High and school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For some of us, it's, <laughs> um, I don't under, I don't, I, I don't recognize most of the works that she talks about in Charing Crossroad. Um, I, a lot of the pieces she's talking, I mean, I recognize she's, she's a big fan of John Donne and um, I didn't mean to sound like that was a, I almost sound like John Donne, like a, <laughs> she's a big fan of Donne. And I mean, I know these names and peeps and this kind of thing, but, but I'm not doing the kind of reading that she's done. I mean, right. I've just done the bits and pieces that you get in your English textbook. Um, and I also love the way she talks about them as very familiar right she people <laughs> no it's really and and i want to say i want to point out on, officially on the podcast that my copy of 84 charing crossroad is from a secondhand store okay i have to talk so i treated myself i didn't get the book out of the library which is what i'm before i treated myself to a brand new copy Ooh. yeah well it's it was really disappointing though because it's a very cheap printing it's a very cheap edition and there's like a typo on every other page and I'm like this is it's just so so unsatisfying so now I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to try to buy a used copy and see if I can get a nice used copy (laughs) 
because this new slick, cheap, not well edited one is breaking my heart. But I think that that's the perfect uh, tribute to pay to this lovely yes. book is to go wander around in secondhand bookstores looking for used copies. I feel like that's exactly the spirit that this book inspires. I think so. I think so. And it's, it is, it's really, it, and it's a short book. And like I said, you can get through it very, very quickly. I mean, I think you could read it in an hour. Don't. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you could. I mean, it's, but I really, I was laughing out loud. You know, it is a balm for your soul, which which I feel I needed, and it, it made me feel good reading it. I'm glad we picked it for the podcast. I'm glad I, mean, I picked it for the podcast. If you, you go on through Duchess of Bloomsbury Street again, I think that that heartwarming of connections, people who are strangers, but who want to reach out and and connect with each other, and um, yeah, it it did it did feel very much like how can I bring more of that into my own life? Yes. Um, so, but we're gonna take we're gonna take a, a, a fairly hard turn. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. <laughs> in our reading choices. So you did say you were okay with reading genre. Yes. And with maybe reading a little bit of science fiction fantasy. I'm in. So the book that I have picked for our next book is called Ancillary Justice Ancillary by Anne Leckie. Ancillary A N C I L L A R Y. Justice by Anne Leckie, L-E-C-K-I-E. And it is a science fiction book that came out, I think it's 2013. And it's the first book in a trilogy. I've been meaning to read it for a while because it is, it won the Hugo, the Nebula, the Arthur C. Clarke, the Locus, and the British Science Fiction Award. And that's not counting another three or four awards it won as a debut novel because it's the author's debut novel. Um, And it is very science fiction-y. You know, sometimes you pick up a science... I know some people have this issue with science fiction. Okay, first of all, you have to understand, this is my home genre. This this is, you know, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein. This is, this is ground zero for me, science fiction. Um, and to a lesser extent, fantasy. I kind of all glom it all together. And I understand that for some people it's hard. You know, you pick up the book and in the first paragraph you're getting you know, words that you don't understand and, and the Rajai empire and, you know, strange names and all that kind of stuff. But I'm really excited about this one. So I'm hoping that, um, that you're going to enjoy it because it has just, it's just gotten a lot of good press. And I've heard that the author does some really interesting things with gender. Oh, cool. Because of course that is the problem that a lot of people, um, I will lump myself in with those people have with science fiction is is that some of the great classic science fiction, in addition to being great storytelling, also happens to veer a little toward misogyny. Speaking of talking about things that people love. Well, let's say 99%. Let's say. <laughs> okay. I, was... I mean, having having read it, and actually, I, I it depends on your definition of misogyny. Women are basically absent. Right. From and well, I should say anyone who's not a white straight male um is pretty much absent from the vast majority of the science fiction that I read growing up. And I again, I have an enormous soft spot in my heart for all of that stuff. I think it would be fun. I'm hoping someday in our um that I'll have the opportunity. I'd like to teach two classes. I'd like to teach I'd like to teach a classic science fiction class that is pretty much all old white guys. <laughs> and then I'd like to teach a sister class that is 
no white guy, no white that. guys. Teach that at Jason's school. Tell him, tell him I told you. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to do that because I, I, I enjoy the classic stuff, but there is great stuff happening right now that is, I, again, not, <laughs> love the white guys, but that's not, that's, that's not them. That's new voices. And Anne Leckie is one of those voices. And, you know, I went to look her up. Because I, I kind of assumed, you know, she's, this is her first book. I kind of assumed that she was uh, a young, per, you know, a young woman. It turns out that she is a couple years older than I am. Oh. So she was like in her late 40s when she published this. And it came out of uh, 10 years before she published it. She was a stay-at-home mom with, I think, like a two-year-old and a six-year-old. And for NaNoWriMo, for National Novel Writing Month, she, she, she wrote an outline. And 10 years later, she published it. Uh, she went to some, you know, in the meantime, she went to uh, some different writing conferences. She went to a writing conference with Octavia Butler. Um, and she ultimately published it as this, this first volume, this ancillary justice. And then it won every award it could win. I love that. So I feel like if nothing else... <laughs> Even if we we should read this book in solidarity right. <laughs> with a stay at home mom who, you know, it may have taken 10 years, but um, but she did it. Oh, well, now I'm super excited to read it. That's an inspirational story. I was I was real. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Um, so, yeah. So I haven't read it and I haven't even started it and I haven't read too much. I can't give you a summary of it because I've really gotten out of the habit of um. I try not to know too much about books when I'm going into them. Like I read about them and I see what they're about and then I put them on my list. And then whenever I get around to them, I don't, I don't necessarily want to check back in to see what they're about. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no. I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think it can really skew you in a direction of reading that maybe mm-hmm. you don't want to be, it's not to your benefit to be skewed in. And well, sometimes I'm surprised by things that if I'd read the front flap, it's right there. But if I'm just reading it blind, I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Right. It makes books more interesting. I support. I'm excited to read it. Oh, good. Good. And you're allowed to not like it. It's okay. (laughs) But, um, but anyway. All right. I think, I think that's, that's all I have to say. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast with Suzanne and Amy brought to you by Homeschool Life Magazine. We will be back in a fortnight with more discussion about all the fun places where home, school, and life intersect. We'll see you then. Goodbye.